1841, Don José Elias, part of the extended and influential Elias González family, petitioned the Mexican government for a land grant in the Santa Cruz River Valley. Don José hoped to ranch thousands of head of cattle across this land grant, which included creeks, grass-carpeted hills, and some narrow valleys. He would eventually be granted 33,000 acres of land, which he would name for the large stands of walnut trees that grew in some of the mountain passes that fell on his property. Like most grants, this one was extremely beat up by the Apache during the twilight years of Mexican ownership, and mostly abandoned. But we have records from William Emery, then surveying for the Gadsden Purchase in the 1850s, that this place, and the namesake walnut trees, were still there. However, for roughly the next three decades, this spot was nothing more than a name on a map. Another location in the middle of the desert where, with some exceptions, nobody really lived. But starting in the early 1880s, this place would take on new sudden life as it became a center of extensive commerce and the meeting place between two nations. When you visit today, the walnut trees may be gone, but their namesake communities, using the Spanish word of nogales, of course, are still there and are still the prototypical examples of what only came to life in the late 19th century. Border towns. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 154, Along the Border. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we took a look at the complex economic forces happening down in Sonora, which mostly amounted to high-level Mexican policy allowing Americans to come in and basically dominate the place. We're going to carry on in a similar vein today, except we're mostly going to drag our attention up to the international boundary running between Arizona and Sonora to talk about how policy and social dynamics were forming there. So let's start with the border itself. Forever and a half ago, in episodes 26 and 27, we covered the arduous process to fix the American-Mexican border in the years following the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and then the Gadsden Purchase. Well, by this point in our story, the early 1890s, a new binational boundary commission had been formed to resurvey the delineation between the two countries. This had first been proposed and approved the decade previous, when it came to both nations' attention that the markers set in place by the original boundary team were slowly disappearing. For example, at the Pacific Coast, visitors were engaging in a little bit of historical vandalism by chipping away a piece of the marker to keep as a souvenir, while in El Paso, the monument left there was now thoroughly bullet-ridden. Between these two points, most of the irregular stone markers had simply vanished. Of the 19 markers set down between the Colorado River and the spot just west of Nogales where the border makes that 45-degree turn toward Yuma, this new commission could only locate 11. Part of this new commission's work was to place markers no more than 8,000 meters apart, that's just a hair under 5 miles, even in the middle of absolutely nowhere. 
This was to fix the problem of unequal spacing that had existed with the previous markers, which could be 15, 20, or even 100 miles apart. Obviously, this bumped up the number of markers, going from 52 to 258, with even more added in coming years. Placing these additional markers also brought to light a lot of ambiguity that had developed between various landowners and businessmen about what was exactly in the U.S. or in Mexico, and had allowed for a good deal of smuggling. Author Rachel St. John in her book Line in the Sand gives the story of rancher Fernando Ortiz, who was told during the work of surveying that part of his ranch, located near Sassabee, was actually located in the United States. Though he had been faithfully paying his taxes to the state of Sonora, he was informed that he now owed the U.S. the equivalent of a thousand pesos. When he was unable to pay that sum, Ortiz was arrested. Another finding of the second survey is that the first survey, while good, was not 100% accurate, and there were a few incidences where the line had resulted in territorial losses for one side or the other, though mostly they impacted Mexico. However, and I do love the common sense that prevails here, the commission decided that in the instances of the biggest errors, they all were in the most remote, inhospitable, and uninhabitable locations, so they were just not going to do anything about it. That's the fun version, at least. I do also have to note that they technically only had the power to survey the current line, errors and all, and couldn't change the already established border. The new markers they set up were all six feet tall, with a hole at the top for a flag, just for that extra amount of visibility. When placed near cities, such as Tijuana, the markers were also enclosed with a wrought iron fence just to stop the sort of historical vandalism I described earlier. They also carried a plaque in English and Spanish, warning anyone that damaging the markers was punishable as a misdemeanor in both countries. What probably gave the commission the most trouble was when this clarified boundary went right through the middle of one of the new communities that straddled the line. As funny as this may sound to us, or at least to me, up until the 1880s, the western portion of the international border could be distinguished from the eastern portion in Texas by the lack of border communities. That's right. Unlike old established pairings like Laredo and Nuevo Laredo and El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, if you looked at New Mexico, Arizona, and California, there weren't that many communities right at the fence line. The ones we have today were basically created by the border itself, and by all those complex economic forces we spent so much time discussing last week. And this is just the beginning of the reasons I justified spending an entire episode talking about the state of Sonora last week rather than Arizona. And so now we have places like Columbus, New Mexico, right across from Palomas, Chihuahua, or the delightfully named pair of Calexico, California, across from Mexicali, Baja, California, and San Isidro, California, across from Tijuana. But turning our attention back to Arizona, let's first take a look at Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora, or as they are colloquially known, Ambos Nogales, which just means both Nogaleses. These communities developed where the Sonora Railway connected with the New Mexico and Arizona Railroad in 1882. Before, in the words of Ramon Corral, 
member of the Sonora Triumvirate and future vice president of Mexico, it had just been an empty spot with the tents of Mexican custom agents that marred the view. Now it had become the gateway to Mexico's west coast, linking with Hermosillo and Guaymas. Bolstered by the movement of goods across the border, Nogales boomed, and state historian Marshall Trimble says that by 1898, or 16 years after its founding, Arizona's Nogales had a population of 1,500 people, making it actually the fifth largest community in the territory. But across the line, Mexico's Nogales was growing at three times the rate of its American sibling. I don't have an 1898 figure, unfortunately, but by 1910, it had a population of 4,000. I can personally attest that it's still something of a shock today to go across the border at Nogales and realize just how much bigger Nogales Sonora is. The supremacy of Ambos Nogales in customs matters was undercut in 1900, when the next major border town couple arose. These were the twins of Naco, Arizona and Naco, Sonora, which is where one of those railroad spur lines serving primarily to ship ore out of Cananea crossed the border. And around the same time, in just a scooge to the east, the border towns of Douglas and Agua Prieta came into existence, this time servicing the spur line coming out of the mines at Nakozari. While we are here, I suppose I should do my due diligence and talk about the namesake of the town of Douglas and how he fits into everything here. And that necessitates talking a little bit more about Bisbee. Back in episode 74, I sort of hit pause on talking about Bisbee after George Warren lost his mining claims after betting he could outrace a man on a horse. That was in 1878, and we are, of course, well beyond that now. Well, by 1880, the railroad reached Bisbee, and that opened up the camp's potential for mining, much as the Iron Horse had done for those mines down in Sonora. The Copper Queen claim had been purchased by some railroad investors from San Francisco, who were highly encouraged by the report coming from their lawyer, and namesake for the camp, DeWitt Bisbee. I cannot stress enough how rich the Copper Queen mine really was. For example, in June 1880, after a smelter was completed, the mine started going in earnest. And while clearing away some brush from the claim's west side, the new owners discovered a 60-foot circular formation that was nearly all carbonate copper, which I believe is a greenish-blue mineral called malachite, but now we are rapidly getting away from my wheelhouse. But further excavations in the area revealed high-grade ore that was nearly 25% pure copper. The owners of the Copper Queen sent some of this ore back to Pennsylvania for a chemical analysis, and this is where they attracted the attention of Dr. James Douglas. Douglas was a Canadian-born scientist, having studied chemistry, geology, and mineralogy in Quebec, studies that he coupled with the practical experience of spending nine months in Chile installing copper-treating works. Very impressed by the samples that he saw from the Copper Queen, and having been hired by some eastern investors to look at potential mining properties between Prescott and Flagstaff, Douglas came out to Arizona in 1881 and made sure to swing south to see Bisbee. This trip just solidified his assessment that this copper mine was figuratively a gold mine, and once back east he convinced a company called Phelps Dodge, up to then an import-export business, to go into mining. 
Intrigued by Dr. Douglas's report, the company would buy the Detroit Copper Company in Morency and another claim in Bisbee. In 1885, Phelps Dodge would buy the Copper Queen mine for $1.25 million, or about $39.5 million today. Despite the price tag, the purchase was worth every penny, which were probably minted using Copper Queen Copper anyway, as it would prove to be the richest mine in Arizona. Trimble tells us that as a reward for turning them onto this venture, Phelps Dodge gave Douglas a choice between a commission or a stake in the business. He chose the latter, and it made him insanely wealthy. By the time he died in 1918, he was worth more than $20 million. So in 1900, when businessmen jumped on rumors that Phelps Dodge planned to build a smelter right across the border from Mexico, where the railroad entered the country, they named the town site they'd come up with Douglas. As another little aside, Trimble tells us that the first name of the location was Blackwater, because, well, the water there was terrible. But you can still see that original name in the Mexican town that popped up opposite Douglas, Agua Prieta, which you can translate as either Blackwater or Dark Water. And you'll also recall from episodes 147 and 148 that Douglas, at its inception, wasn't exactly the best place in the world, full of rough-and-tumble characters who made a habit of exploiting the border for all sorts of illegal shenanigans. As I said, the border towns meant profit, and they basically became the gateways for customers and goods on the other side. Because of each country's tariffs and access to certain goods, each side of the border developed specialties that it could market towards residents of the opposite country. The American shops could offer tools and other made-in-America products that were highly prized. This was a vast change from just a few years prior when a lack of cash and crummy roads had basically meant Mexicans never had any foreign goods, American or otherwise. Meanwhile, the Mexican side could offer cheap agricultural products, cigars and cigarettes, as well as European goods such as French silk and liquors and ornamental wares, items that America taxed heavily. And really, this is the same dynamic we are living with today, as anyone who has crossed the border at Nogales or Los Algodones to get some cheap over-the-counter medicines or even just real vanilla knows. Author Ramon Eduardo Ruiz whose excellent treatise on Sonora and American capitalists has been a great help, says that, quote, From the start, Nogales existed as an emporium run by merchants. Their livelihood, indeed their very survival, depended with rare exceptions on trade with the other side. End quote. He doesn't say it, but I suspect that similar dynamics existed for other border towns as well. By 1890, the majority of the economy in Nogales, Sonora, would be made up of merchants, office workers, and clerks, followed up by wage workers. The leading businessmen of the economy were engaged in exporting things such as ores, livestock, grains, and oranges, which exports totaled some 10 million pesos by 1910. These same traders would also bring in some 5 million pesos worth of imports from the United States. With so much money to be made at the border, it is no surprise that not all of the business going on was strictly legal. As our series of episodes on the Arizona Rangers covered, cattle rustling and smuggling of goods was rampant. 
but when is that not the case? But also, savvy operators learned how to exploit the border for their own profit. A prime example is John Brickwood, who built a saloon in Nogales in the 1890s. Brickwood's saloon was built right up to the line, along the appropriately named International Street, whose northern edge was in the U.S., but the rest of the road was in Mexico. In fact, on the sidewalk, piled next to his saloon was a massive amount of stones, the remains of one of those original border markers that the commission was even then replacing. From this spot, Brickwood could sell American liquor from his bar and Mexican cigars from a stand in front of the saloon, both duty-free. This is a prime example that is mentioned a couple times in my sources, but Brickwood was hardly the only person engaging in these sort of completely legal, but obvious evasions of customs duties. Americans built many buildings right up against the border in the hopes of facilitating smuggling or engaging in shady business practices to skirt having to pay customs duties, something that was immediately evident to the Border Commission as they made their way through Nogales. To combat this, the Commission recommended that both countries establish a no-man's zone of sorts, a strip of land about 50 feet wide running along the border that nobody could build in. U.S. President William McKinley would take up this recommendation, ordering in 1897 that a strip 60 feet wide be enacted for the mile running through Nogales. All the businesses, homes, barns, and other assorted buildings, including Brickwood Saloon, were given 90 days to clear out of this newly declared neutral zone. Of course, people elsewhere kept building right next to the line, with some Mexican families in Douglas deciding to pitch their tents right at the border for the express purpose of obscuring whether anything was happening in the U.S. or Mexico. To put an end to this once and for all, a decade later in 1907, President Theodore Roosevelt would extend this trip across all of California, Arizona, and New Mexico. With the line, or La Linea, now well established, it was time to administer the heck out of it. This led to the rise of custom agents as each side tried its best to milk money off of border traffic. Now, at this time, both countries relied heavily on tariffs as a source of revenue, but in different ways. Broadly speaking, the U.S. in the 19th century had kept its tariffs high to protect its own domestic industries from cheaper foreign goods, so when something was imported, they reaped a large harvest. But Mexico took the opposite approach, keeping its tariffs low in order to encourage goods from the U.S. and Europe to bolster its weak economy, so going for quantity over paying a lot on a few items. Both sides saw that there was a lot of money to be milked off of international traffic, but Mexico took this to the extreme, declaring in 1884 a zona libra, or free zone, which was a 20-kilometer strip that ran the length of the entire border with the U.S. In this free zone, goods from the U.S. could be imported duty-free. Though later legislation would decide that was a step too far, and would just lighten the usual tariffs. This free zone had originally been set up between Texas and the state of Tamaulipas in the 1850s, but fears of high tariffs weakening the economic potential of the northern states had led the country to finally expand it. For the people living in the free zone, this was awesome, but for goods moving either into the U.S. or down further into Mexico, 
it became prohibitively expensive to pay the reduced tariff in the zone and then the full tariff once it moved beyond that. Eventually, President Porfirio Diaz would just do away with the zone altogether in 1905, with his government instead just making exemptions for certain goods to continue stimulating trade. Meanwhile, on the other side of the border, the U.S. was less concerned about how its policies would affect Mexico. One of the few exemptions it did put into place was to make copper duty-free, because, well, Americans were just pulling trainloads of copper out of Mexico every day. However, one place where they did let the hammer fall was on the cattle industry, which did a roaring business between Sonora and the southern U.S. Americans, though, were always a little too eager to be heavy-handed with Mexican ranching operations. If you re-listen to episode 116, you will find that I mentioned how Arizona Governor Conrad Zulick had instituted a 90-day quarantine period for cattle being imported from Mexico. This quarantine ostensibly to keep hoof and mouth disease or ticks from infecting American cattle, had been unpopular in the territory, but it was absolutely hated in Mexico, to the point that they thought about engaging in some sort of economic retaliation. I also mentioned in that episode that the quarantine had been declared unconstitutional because only the federal government can regulate interstate and intercountry commerce. But in the early 1900s, federal inspectors would declare a quarantine on all cattle from Sonora due to a scare of Texas fever, a cattle disease caused by ticks. A who's who of American and Sonoran ranchers got together to discuss what could be done about this, but in the end they had to sit impotently and comply with the quarantine. But it wasn't lost on any Mexicans that these same federal inspectors seemed to have concluded that all Mexican cattle trying to get across the border were suspected to have the disease, while American cattle grazing in Mexico were almost always deemed healthy and fit to cross at their leisure. But the worst blow to Sonoran ranchers, Ramon Corral called it the kiss of death, was the extremely protectionist McKinley tariff passed by the United States in 1891. The McKinley Tariff put a massive levy on beef being imported into the U.S., which strangled the Sonoran cattle industry. Now, it didn't die altogether, and cattlemen would still be selling beef to the U.S. at a profit, but many in Sonora would be blaming the McKinley Tariff for their woes for years. And finally, I should point out that cattle rustling was everywhere along the border. Rustlers could be American or Mexican, and the cows could be from anywhere in Mexico or even Arizona, as long as the cattle got to someone willing to pay. I've noted this before, but Americans in southern Arizona bought up beef and didn't ask too many questions. And tying things back around, you'll remember that stopping just this sort of cattle rustling was the whole point of forming the Arizona Rangers in the first place. Looking back, I see now that I probably should have done my series on the Rangers after these episodes. Oh well, I guess that's what I get for being a one-man operation surrounded by way too many books while turning out episodes on a tight deadline. But aside from just the sheer economics of all this, tariffs also had another tangible effect on the border. The assignment of customs officials to regulate all this international trade. These custom officials would become the first non-military personnel assigned to patrol the border as both nations did their darndest to funnel trade only through official ports of entry. Now, there were some real problems with this. First off, if you lived near the border, 
but you didn't live near a port, then you suddenly had a massive expense to get your goods to a place where you were legally allowed to cross. Secondly, the border had never really been like this firm dividing line. In fact, the two countries wouldn't really even put up fences until the 20th century. Sure, governments and armies took it very seriously, but as the story of John Brickwood proved, no one else really did. And there were plenty of ranches that technically were in both countries. Remember poor Fernando Ortiz, the border-straddling rancher from earlier in the episode? Turns out that the American who bought the ranch after him found out about the dual taxes and that he could be charged an import fee just for moving animals from one side of his property to the other. This latter point would stick in everyone's craw, as having cattle roam on land between the two countries was a time-honored practice, and local cowboys, using the modern generic sense and not the contemporary derogatory sense, thought nothing of dipping low the border to go after strays. And over the years, there would be several run-ins between cattlemen and Mexican officials who threatened fines or even to confiscate animals should they dare wander onto their sovereign territory. Then there was the problem of smuggling, which really is always going to crop up when you tell people to only do certain things inside of certain boxes. Most of this was petty smuggling by individuals, like not declaring a bottle of tequila in your baggage when you cross the line, but we do see the start of drug smuggling too after the U.S. passed narcotics laws starting in the 1900s and the 1910s. To combat this, the two countries turned to institutions we've already talked about. Up north were the Arizona Rangers, who were pretty darn effective until internal territorial politics caused their downfall. And down south was their counterpart that I mentioned in episode 147, the Gendarmeria Fiscal, headed by Emilio Kosterliski. And because I really like talking about this Russian expat, Kosterliski and his men became known for their ruthless efficiency when it came to dealing with smugglers. A manager of the Cananea Cattle Company later recalled a certain cottonwood tree from which Kosterliski and his men often hung smugglers they caught. John Slaughter, the cattle baron who owned the San Bernardino Ranch in southeastern Arizona, recalled that when they invited Kosterliski for dinner, he would regale the other guests with, quote, stories too gory to believe. Each course brought half a dozen more oral killings, end quote. While I'm sure this eccentric Russian was good at what he did, by the turn of the 20th century, the U.S. began to think that maybe it needed more than customs officers along the border. Because now we have to talk a little bit about one of the most hot-button issues pretty much ever in the history of the United States. Immigration. I want to stress that up until this time, immigration was not an issue because, as we have seen, crossing the border was as simple as walking from one saguaro cactus to another. But in 1875, Congress passed the first real immigration laws, mainly restricting convicts and prostitutes, but by 1910 the list included the mentally ill, those living on the public dole, contract laborers, anarchists, and polygamists, oh, and the Chinese, because everyone really hates the Chinese. The bulk of immigration into the country at the time was through the seaports. Think of Ellis Island and scenes from An American Tale, but as these new immigration laws went into effect, would-be immigrants decided to try the more lax borders with Canada and Mexico. The U.S. created the Office of the Superintendent of Immigration in 1891, 
which was renamed the Bureau of Immigration in 1895, and then given charge to specifically stem Chinese immigration in 1900. By 1904, a body of 18 men patrolled the Mexican border in New Mexico and Arizona under an immigration inspector based out of Tucson. These men were originally known as Chinese inspectors because, well, one of their chief jobs was to stop Chinese immigration. Seriously, it is mind-blowing now to read about how much people in America really hated Asians. Just mind-blowing. There were about five immigration stations on the western border, but hundreds of miles of open desert. So starting in 1904, the immigration inspector added line riders to his arsenal of tools to basically do what the Border Patrol does today. I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty right now, but basically it was hard for the same reason that patrolling the border today is hard. There were too few immigration officials and lots of immigrants. It was a huge hostile desert everyone was in. And the early 20th century version of coyotes were also out there, charging large amounts of money on the promise to get immigrants into the U.S. I should note also, U.S. restrictions led to a sizable Asian population in northern Mexico, as would-be immigrants found that in that country they could become citizens, own businesses, and even intermarry with locals, all things they could not do as soon as they crossed the border. So, what we have at the start of the 20th century is the once porous border becoming more and more closed and administered. There were no longer marauding Apache to worry about, so from here on out, it was all about controlling immigration and commerce. And that's where I'm going to leave off this week, as we have now thoroughly covered the economic and political realities of the border as it developed. But join me next week as we pick up the thread I left dangling, and look at the social and ethnic makeup of the borderlands and how all the people there mix together. And we'll learn the difference, for Americans at least, between Mexicans and Mexicans. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.